0: Exton Moss Experiment Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And today, what are we going to be watching? Today, we're going to be watching again. <laughs>
1: The Children of the Stones, because this is one of our missing episodes.
0: It is. Regressively, a hard drive crash early in 2021 took down six months' worth of recordings. A lot I believe it months. on Spaff.
1: I think he knows we recorded those comments he was making in the Black Archive, and he has deleted
0: everything. Well, since Spaff has now taken up residence in the Imaginarium, locked himself away with his crisps, I don't think we'll be hearing a lot from him in the future. <laughs> So what is the pricey behind Children of the Stones? We're going to do this episode by episode. It's an absolutely fantastic
1: in all senses of the word 1970s ITV series. It starred... Gareth Thomas and Ian Cuthbertson, and it was one of a whole series of sort of they'd be seen today as urban fantasy, the supernaturally things taking place in various different locations in in Britain. And there, there were things like on on ITV, you had uh, probably uh, Escape into Night was one of the earliest ones, the Georgian House, Raven Sky, King of the Castle. And Children of the Stones on BBC, you had things like Carrie's War and The Changes. The one that we're focusing on tonight is Children of the Stones, which is possibly the best known and best regarded of all of these. A seven-part story from 1977. And the first part was Into the Circle on the 10th of January 1977. Oh, pissing distance from my birthday. Um, So I'd have been eight well, I'd have been seven when this started, and then eight by the time episode two rolled along. Shall we crack on with episode one? Oh, no, we've housekeeping to do first.
0: We certainly do. And uh, first up is the tonic screwdriver. Tonight we are drinking Whitley Neal's Quince Gin. And the infobollox tells us it's inspired by the timeless flavours of Persia. The exotic juice of quince with apple-sharp pear sweet... Persia, did you say? Who oh, do we know from yeah. Persia?
2: I am Persian. Name your price.
0: Well, I will name my price, Siri. It's for you to be quiet for the rest of the episode. But welcome aboard.
3: Ah.
1: Oh, I don't think you're allowed to say things like that to Siri.
3: You have no interest in women,
2: but you are not a homosexual. I am
0: not. Now, I shall try again. Inspired by the timeless flavours of Persia, the exotic juice of quince adds apple-sharp pear-sweet high notes to the smooth gin base. Well, it's another 43% gin. It's... um, It doesn't smell very nice. It smells quite medicinal, actually, and it looks quite... It's quite...
1: Sampley. it's piss yellow. Yeah. Frankly. And it it smells like TCP. So this isn't selling itself to me instantly. However, try it. Oh hello. Oh now. It, that tastes nothing whatsoever like the way that it smells. It's really sweet. That's the first thing that hits you. It's very, very sweet.
0: I'm definitely getting the apple pear.
1: Yeah. And I mean it tastes like quince. Yeah. Um, I've, I've always thought of a quince as a very English thing rather than Persian or Turkish or whatever. But this is absolutely lovely. Nothing in any way like the way that it smells. I really quite like this, actually. That's absolutely delicious. I don't think that a tonic is the best way to to deal with this. Now we we always compare like for like same tonic so that we we're, we're being fair with our comparisons i'd put this in a martini i think a bit of a bit of vermouth would really make this sing but it's lovely it's lovely it's interesting it's very different i, I normally when we have have gins it's sort of all oh, this reminds me of this and this reminds me of this there isn't anything else that I've, I've come, uh, come across as a gin that, uh, that is like this. This is lovely. This is interesting. It's sweet, but there are sour notes to it. It gives a lovely aftertaste. Mm. Um, aftertaste is a little bit on the sweet side. It's a gin. You're going to get a, a little bit of a bitter aftertaste, but it, it's overpowered by the sweet. By this is lovely. This is almost a, a liqueur gin. I mean, yes, I, I, I don't have any left. Give me a second. Mm. Let me find the bottle. Is there any, enough left in that to have a taste? Wow. Neat. That is absolutely gorgeous. I got about half a drop out of it. Oh, everything that makes this delicious as a, a gin and tonic is there in spades as the neat gin. This would make a nice sipping gin. This would make a really nice martini, I'm sure. It makes a delicious tonic. This is a five out of five for me. I wasn't expecting a huge amount from it, from the uh, the way that it smells. And smelling it now, it, yeah, it yeah. The nose is really disappointing, but everything else about it is lovely. Five out of five.
0: Got to agree. Five out of five for me as well. There's nothing about this when you pour it invites you into the glass. But once you're in there, absolutely. Hello. You you absolutely want to stay in there. Oh, you sexy thing. And we here at the Tonic Screwdriver like interesting gins. So hats off, Whitley Neil. Well done.
1: Yes, I'm very,
0: very, very impressed by that. It's a shame we've only got that little taster, really. It is, really. But with what we have left, let's take our glasses into the bowels of Podcasting House to open up the Black Archive. <laughs> Simon, I'm going to let you go first. What are you rescuing from the lost TV and film archives this week?
1: Well, what I'm going to rescue is another stalwart of early 70s and late 60s Uh, children's TV programming, and that's The Freewheelers. It was a sort of kiddies, action-adventure, spy drama. Started in 1968, went through to 1973, had a number of reasonably well-known people in in the cast, uh, and there were generally two or three teenagers or people pretending to be teenagers as lead characters. One of whom was the thing that Wendy Padbury did uh, after she left Doctor Who, but she wasn't one of the original cast. Right. Uh, one of the original free-wheelers was Tom Owen, best known as the son of fuck. What's his name? Owen. Bill Owen um, ended up finishing his career in Last of the Summer Wine, and Tom Owen ended up in Last of the Summer he Wine did. as well. Yes. The other members of the original lineup were Gregory Phillips and also Mary Maud, who was one of the, the co-Amy McDonald's in the second series of, at last, the 1948 show. Survivability isn't awful. Uh, the final three series, so series six to eight, exist completely. First series exists completely and I think there's a single episode from season two, I can't remember what the survivability is is of the series in between and Wendy Padbury joined the cast in series five and I I think was there through to series eight so certainly quite a number of her episodes exist. Much like Doctor Who actually where most of Wendy Padbury's episodes exist because series six is almost completely intact apart from the space pirates.
0: So, what would you like from the Space Museum?
1: Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> is the Quinch gin kicking in. Well, I would like to rescue the Morecambe and Wise show. The vast majority of Series 1 is missing. There have been three episodes recovered. Five and seven were recovered from Sierra Leone, a place we don't like to talk about. And Phil Morris found one that was in such a bad state that it's had to be x-rayed frame by frame to reconstruct it, which is, that happened in 2017. From Series 2 onwards, the vast majority of their material does exist. There are isolated examples that are either missing or they're on film prints rather than the original tapes. The first series was uh, way back in the 50s. It was a series called Running Wild. That was their very first series, and that doesn't exist at all. And presumably went out live and was never never recorded. I don't have that in front of me, but you'd think so. That early on in, in TV history, I would suspect it was live, yes. But I don't think it's understating that Morecambe and Wise had quite a big cultural impact, certainly in Britain, if nowhere else. So I don't like Gaps. I'd like those to be back. <laughs> So here we are, back in the viewing room, Uh, it's time to run VT on episode
4: one of Children of the Stones. Magnetometer. No doubt. An instrument for measuring magnetic fields. Magnetic fields? Where are
2: they? A magnetic field is a field of force, it surrounds a magnet.
4: Oh, you've got no magnets here. That's where you're wrong Mrs Crabtree, you've got at least 53. The stones, the standing stones, each one a source of great magnetic power. The stones? I never heard that. How do you know? It's my job. So you've come to measure our stones? Well, I never.
0: Okay, that was episode one, Into the Circle.
1: From the 10th of January, 1977. What do we think? Well, there's an awful lot that's gone on in that story. It felt quite slow-paced, but there was actually a massive amount of plot and info dump that went on. So it starts off with a widowed astrophysicist uh, called Adam Brake, who arrives in a village called Millbury with his son Matthew to investigate their local stone circle. And as they're driving into the village, Adam has to brake to avoid what looks like one of the standing stones that then turns into an elderly woman who then turns out to be their housekeeper. You go back to the, the cottage that they're renting, Housekeeper turns out to be kind of like Mrs. Doyle's politer cousin, actually, And <laughs> as they're un- unloading all their stuff and the, uh, the scientific equipment that Adam has brought with him. And she's a bit disapproving of the whole you're going to be investigating our stones thing. Matthew shows him a picture that he's found in a junk shop a few years previously, which seems to show the stones and a column of light coming out of them and a serpent leaving the the stones and chasing people who are running away from them. And she has a look at this and faints and drops the tea tray. And rather than be particularly worried about the fact that their housekeeper has just lost consciousness, it's all terribly jokey and Adam Brake is, oh, well, that's probably what the the artist was intending. Landlord turns up, a fella called Hendrik, played by Ian Cuthbertson, who puts his hand on the housekeeper's shoulder, wakes her up, and then immediately the three fellows send her off to make more tea. So it, it, there's no concern that anything worrying may have happened. There's no concern that she may actually need a break. It's just, get yourself back in the kitchen, wench. Matthew heads out off out into the village Meets one of the local kids Who is a fairly stereotypical cheery scouser And, and they cycle off together Watched by the local peeping Tom As they're cycling along There's a, a roadline lorry that had come across And I'd completely forgotten about roadline to be so honest So do I, yeah But there, there was a roadline lorry coming along That looks to be set to hit Scouse boy, And Matthew sh- shouts out after him And the roadline lorry just disappears they end up at a sweetie shop where they go in and get ice creams and stuff and very 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 unsubtly there is a, a teenage girl in the village who just happens to be in there and just happens to be watching them and just happens to to bump into matthew to introduce herself scouse boy says oh well you can't blame her for being a bit strange she's not a happy one adam break and hendrix are in the pub Oh again being a bit 1970s and sexist there's a woman there by the name of Margaret who is just sitting there sipping her sherry or whatever out of a a schooner. And I haven't seen a schooner glass in years. Anyway, and reading the paper and minding her own business and they barge along and um, Hendricks kind of forces break on her as as a sort of, he's new in the village, you need somebody to look after her and he fancied the look of you, so have a way. Then the action cuts to the local school, which kind of implies that all of, all three of these characters are in getting whammed out their skulls at lunchtime. Fair enough, been there, done that. But it's not a great example to set. The the school is very definitely set into two separate groups. There's a group of about half a dozen kids at a table on their own who Scouse Boy goes and sits with. And when Matthew tries to sit with them, it's, oh, no, you should sit over over here. Very clearly, you should sit over there with the remedials. My homework from the night before is this complicated maths equation that all the kids at the, the higher table had been able to solve, no problem at all, and nobody else had been able to solve. Even Matthew, who is likely to turn out to be an irritating boy genius. <laughs> a little bit of an Adric spoiler there, but by the time we're getting later on in the series, you're going to get to the point where you're going to want to slap Matthew really quite a lot.
0: As with all boy geniuses.
1: Adam goes to meet Margaret, uh, who is the curator of the local museum... And they talk, uh, actually they do a massive info dump about the history of the village and the stone circles and the fact that there are loads of ley lines that join there and Adam does the, there's no scientific proof of this, therefore it's bollocks. And she does the, well, actually I'd quite like to be open-minded about this. And neither attitude is overplayed and neither attitude is looked, looked at as being particularly unreasonable. And she talks about how there was a certain... Survey where the surveyor got squashed under a stone because he was trying to bury it. And she says that, I want to test out to see if you're the kind of man that I think you are, which all sounds a bit suggestive and Mm -hmm. uh, I imagine was supposed to. And then it cuts to Matthew riding along on his bike and the local people, Tom, leaps out at him, not unreasonably. Matthew gets freaked, falls off his bike and smacks his head against a fence post. Meanwhile, margaret has taken adam to try and find out what kind of man he is mm-hmm. by getting to touch one of the local stones and he has all these weird visions of the villagers shouting and looking scared including his son including her daughter margaret's daughter is the slightly weird girl who pretended to meet accidentally in the in the sweet shop has all these visions and then passes out end of episode that was all episode one you think back to how much has gone on, and you think, oh, I must have watched two or three episodes of this. And
0: it's- I am really enjoying this. I mean, this is one of those things where, well, there's two people in it for a start that I'm delighted whatever they're in, Gareth Thomas, and particularly Ian Cuthbertson. I have always liked him and whatever he's in. In this one, he's doing a particular sort of, he's drifting towards RP, whereas... So how th- many Paulers do we think?
3: Professor Quater, office, you're speaking. Is it something bad?
0: I think this is a four. Yeah, I think this is a four, yes. Because when he goes RP, and he did this in the reboss operation, when he wasn't doing his uh, Somerset accent. Yes, Isn't this the post-operation? The post Thank you, Mr. <laughs> Iles-Rush. if you're listening. Uh, Ian Cuthbertson. <laughs> <laughs> he was Scottish, and I think the only time I ever saw him use his, uh, what I presume is his native accent, was in Supergran. But in this, no, he is home conscious. I think, I think four out of five pollers is reasonable for this.
4: Adam! Oh, Mr. Hendrick. I've been looking for you. Me? Why? What have I done? First things first. What will you have? No, no, let me, please. Two large whiskers. About... I was told there was a telegram for you. Oh. I promised to deliver it. Oh, thank you. But
0: he is just a delight to watch in stuff like this. He does cult and, I suppose, occult stuff very, very well. Sinister and friendly at the same time, which is an interesting trick if you can pull it off. Uh, It's no secret that I love Stones of Blood more than any of the other story in the Key to Time season, the Doctor Who series from
1: 1978. Because of Amelia
0: Rumford. And her sausage sandwiches.
1: On the subject of very old ladies, the housekeeper, and she's not very old, but no, she's... She's in advancing years. She's seen a few summers. It was played by Ruth Dunning, who was the matriarch of the Grove family, the BBC's first soap opera in the 1950s. One of the other members of the Grove family was played by Peter Bryant of Doctor Who producer fame. He started off as an actor um, and his first big television break was as one of the members of the Grove family. Then he became an announcer on BBC radio and worked through that and through the script department of the, of BBC Radio to end up working with the Doctor Who team and ended up as as producer. He was Series 5 producer, wasn't he? He did all the bass under siege. And yes,
4: all the, he did. Uh, all, oh, uh, did he?
1: His wife was in Tomb of the Cybermen, wasn't she? Whose wife
0: was in Inferno then? That was, uh, no, that was Douglas Canfield's wife. Peter Bryant was married to Shirley Cookland, who was caftan in Tomb of the Cybermen. Who Fraser Hines tried it on with before realizing who she was. Anyway, we may, we may just really? be drifting. Oh yes, yes, because I think she herself has said it in an interview, and he's banked it up. <laughs> God oh, love the man. He's so he's very very entertaining in real life, Fraser Hines. <laughs> but g- dragging us back to Children of the Stones, it's one of those series that it's lodged halfway between children's series and Doctor Who, and there, because inevitably these things had a lot of staff crossover in terms of the production team it's not difficult to see why but there was another one which we've sort of touched on but not really watched yet which was the changes and you said there were a few of these in the 70s that are very very fondly remembered almost Mm. as adult dramas rather than children's serials yeah i remember loving
1: this when i was a kid uh, because it would have been the sort of thing that was on when i came home from school and was being looked after by my grandmother and and she loved science fiction uh changes was another one that i remember watching A lot of the things um, that would have been around about the same time, so King of the Castle, Raven, that kind of thing, I don't really remember watching, but I I do remember watching the changes and being absolutely blown away by
0: it. Yes. We should run 80 on the the next episode one way or another because I'm enjoying this.
3: I took you out to the circle and asked you to touch a stone.
4: To see if you're the kind of man I think you are.
3: A man of sensitivity. But sensitivity to what? Well I touched that same stone and I felt something a shock but nothing like the sort of shock you must have
4: felt. But that wasn't psychic force. That was electromagnetic energy a perfectly natural phenomenon. Even though you were earthed and so was the stone. There must be some perfectly simple explanation.
3: There is. What? Psychic forces don't obey the same laws as electromagnetic ones.
4: (laughs) Come on Margaret. There's nothing psychic about residual magnetism. You don't have to have special powers to receive a common or garden electric shock. Well,
3: it was hardly common or garden. You flew through the air with the greatest of ease.
4: Yes. Part
1: two again it's a pretty plot-packed episode it starts off with adam at margaret's suggestion touching the stones and having a fairly hefty conniption and also matt getting to meet uh, freddie jones character die who just comes across as a bit weird to start with and then you have this thing where they're going around the stones and there are all these really weird close-up camera angles and ethereal music that's very very effective and this is all while Matt and Adam are scientifically surveying the, the stones. And clearly he can't afford a research assistant, so he gets his young son to come along and do it. <laughs> who gets distracted by a, a rabbit in a, stare, in a snare, which he re- releases and leaves a message for, uh, for Di to, uh, to get in touch. There's then an awful lot of talk about the orientation of the stones. And are they leaning in or are they not leaning in? Um, Matt builds himself a, a theodolite. And then Di turns up blaming Matt for having released his dinner and proceeds to empty out the cottage's larder and guzzles a whole load of cider. Um, There's quite a lot of alcohol going on in this um, because Adam and Margaret are knocking back the scotch and Margaret starts off opening the bottle, knocking one back and then (laughs) when Adam actually offers her one, she says, oh, no, I don't. So a touch of the not only drinking but secret drinking. While Di is, is busy ransacking the kitchen and guzzling all the cider he can, he warns Matt from interfering too much with the stones and laughs at the idea of leaving the stones and says that that doesn't ever happen. Adam's sonic survey um, demonstrates that there's a dish underneath the stones and although the stone stones appear to lean a bit they're actually all at 90 degrees, and that most stone circles are aligned with either the sun or the moon or something fairly major astrologically. This stone circle isn't aligned with anything at all, but just seems to be pointing towards the middle of Ursa Major. They look at as a map of the ley lines, which touch the stones, but realize that if you extend the lines of the ley lines through past the stones, they form a smaller circle all around Hendrick's house. Adam and Margaret agree um, to meet up for a drink that evening but they find the pub closed the whole village deserted. Matt's looking out through his telescope and, and gets quite distracted with his picture falling off the wall and all. So goes out to see what what's going on and and finds all of the the villagers holding hands in the uh, the grounds of Hendrix's manor house and sort of doing singing and chanting. He's confronted by Guy and then touches one of the, one of the stones, and ends up collapsing and unconscious. His collapse is the cliffhanger for episode two. So there's an awful lot gone on in that.
0: But it's wonderfully—it's a cult, the right word. But the music—we've mentioned this with part one, but the music is just enchanting. It's all a cappella. It's all—it's very cool, ethereal. Ethereal—that's a good word, yeah. And it really helps because this sort of thing you'd expect sort of 1970s a bit electronic music actually for a kiddie series Uh, or if this was done as a doctor who it would have been dudley simpson's orchestra but the the acapella singing really brings this to life there's something about stone circles which i think is in us all there's just something mystical about them and it draws us in but the story wise it rattles along at a fair old pace there's a lot of what uh I've heard Gareth Thomas describe in interviews as plot 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 it doesn't feel like it though it doesn't f- some speeches are very very expositional and feel like it this one isn't
1: when we co- when we come on to episode 3 there is a giant plot dump chunk of exposition towards the end but we'll, we'll talk about that with with episode three there are parts of this that i can't help but be reminded of century falls with
0: yep i know what you mean
1: uh particularly that bit where you get the close-up on the faces of the of the
0: villagers and they they're chanting away century falls leapt out to me at that agreed yep it's all very much of the same stable although if i'm honest i'm preferring this to century falls that's interesting. Now, I, I prefer this to Century Falls,
1: but how much of that is because I remember watching this first time around when I was a young kid, and Century Falls came along a little bit later. It's difficult for me to distance distance myself
0: from that, but for you, who won't have seen this first time around. Um, yes, I'm with you on that, yeah. But for something that was made for kiddies in the 1970s, this is remarkably adult, or let's, it's not as kiddified as you would get nowadays.
1: Yes, and Burnham and Ray and and other people who did the, these kind of things weren't afraid of putting some quite mature themes into
0: into things. I'm yeah. not familiar with their other work, I don't think. But if this is an example of what their work was like, I can imagine. I can't understand why. I know there were things like the changes. Well, the changes was the BBC. This is yeah, now TV. I, I, I know, and, and you're still left with the. Uh, marvellous episode breaks in this which are very nostalgic with a little stripy thing in the corner.
1: Yeah, um, and the other thing about the changes is that it was an adaptation whereas this was an original drama. Burnham and Ray did quite a lot of stuff. Um, I'm remembering so things like Raven... And of the of the things that I, I thought they were involved with, so Ray, uh, Raven, King of the Castle, Sky, that kind of thing, it turns out Raven's only their only other thing. Raven's Raven's good and worth doing. It's not as good as um, Children of the Stones, but he was also a, an actor in um, things like The Avengers and, and The Saint and all, all sorts of things. He has three writing credits. There's Children of the Stones, there's Raven, and there's The Ambassadors of Death, episode one. Just episode one? I thought that was Malcolm Hulg. Uncredited. Oh, and he appeared in The Silurians, episode 6, as the t- t- ticket collector at the, the train station.
0: A pivotal yeah. role. Anyway, shall we move on to episode 3?
1: Episode 3 is The Serpent in the Circle from the 24th of January 1977.
2: What's that all about new people having to stick together? You said that when we first met. Oh, well, we do okay why? for protection. protection? protection against what? you told kevin i must be human because i'd only just arrived. that's right. so after people have been here for a while they aren't human anymore like those children in there. yes something seems to happen to them. they change. oh you must have noticed some of us are normal and the rest are happy ones. yes. but they don't seem happy. oh i know they always behave well never lose their tempers. always shine in class but they're like zombies yes robots puppets come on we better go there's a man called di do you know him the poacher he's potty i think always trying to warn me telling me to be careful he told me if i ever needed sanctuary i could go to him for help no if we ever need help we should go to the sanctuary Lynette Barrow Di lives there End of the previous
1: episode, Matt had collapsed. He was found outside his uh, front door by his dad and was helped back in by the the local doctor, who is one of four pairs of newcomers to the village. Each one is a single parent with a single child. And as well as Adam and Matt and Margaret and Ruth, there's the local doctor and a farmer, both families of which have newly arrived to the, uh, the village. The doctor does an appalling examination of this poor, poor young lad's head, which has blood matted all over. It. And he said, "Oh, that's fine. You've just just taken a little bit of a knock." I mean, <laughs> and the the lad is falling asleep in front of him. And he's just saying, "Oh, said just. It could be worse. Next time, it could be worse than a touch of concussion. Take these sleeping pills." Now, that is not what you do with a head injury. I suspect. It wasn't what you did with a head injury in 1977.
0: But entertainingly anachronistic.
1: Yeah. And the, um, the more normal people who have recently arrived at the village realise uh, that something happens to the people after they've been there for a while. There's a bit of an info dump that the church in the village has been deconsecrated and that after the, the weird events of the night before... The farmer's son, who was previously re- struggling with even the simple stuff that was done in the school, has suddenly become a mathematical genius overnight and moves up to the the big table. Adam has been investigating the stones and finds out that they're, rather than being aligned magnetically to the direction that they would have been when they were dug up, they're all aligned with the, the Earth's current magnetic field, which he says means that some massive energy, energy surge has gone through them. And at the school, the three remaining normal kids are warned by Dai that they're looking at something that's a recurrence of events from the past and that possibly what happened before was people being turned to stone and that there's knowledge and danger in, inside the stones and just a whole lot of sort of mystic si- sounding claptrap. But what he does have is an old clay tablet with a, a, a serpent design on it, which they take a rubbing from. And he feels that this is protecting him. Take this to, uh, to Margaret at the museum, who says that the, uh, the serpent was a, a symbol of protection and also a symbol of the pagan religions. And that there's a, a serpent carved into the baptismal font in, a, in the church, probably as a kind of warning to, uh, to people to, become, to be on an eye out for the old religion. And then you have a massive info dump in the pub between Adam and Hendrick, uh, where there's a, a telegram that where they worked out exactly where the circle is pointing. And it's it aligns with a black hole in, Ursa, in the constellation of Ursa Major that is a result of a supernova which exploded thousands of years ago. Hendrick says that he was a, a research astronomer at Cambridge up until a few years ago when he resigned his chair and moved to Milbury because of some ancient papers that he was given uh, reporting folk tales of a witness to that supernova. That's a little bit unbelievable. Um, researchers working in the same field, even if you're at a different institution, tend to know each other because you go to conferences and things like that. But then, highlight of the episode
0: for you, I'm sure, we get Morris dancing. Yes, I was wondering if you were going to come on to that. Yes, it is in there.
1: And they realise towards the end of the Morris dancing that seems to go on for about a million years, but they realise towards the end of it that two of the people joining in are the newly arrived farmer and his son. And Margaret was saying that the farmer thought that Morris dancing was anachronistic and he wouldn't be seen dead joining in. That comment is a little odd on a couple of levels. Because firstly, a farmer with sort of ties the land would very likely have been involved in, in village life in other villages, isn't likely to have too bad a word to say about Morris dancing. And secondly, he's using words like anachronistic, whereas his son, grammar, has quite clearly left the building. That's a little odd in that you've got like the father who is using quite sophisticated phrasing and the son who can't manage basic grammar but that, that that that's a that's a really really picky point it is cracking along very nicely this was a little bit slower than the two previous episodes but it, it's still not boring
0: in any way well i think a lot uh, of it comes from the way that it's set up you're not bored by either the setting or the ongoing story or the people that are acting in it usually you get the the token kid parts are played by pretty little kids that can't actually act the can in this? I know. I'll, I mean, they're, they're older. They're sort oh, of... The sort of oh, the
1: the third one uh, is it? Kevin? He's really not good. Oh,
0: the ah, uh, yeah, ferdu's Yeah,
1: I've been calling her Ruth. Her name's Sandra, isn't it? Yes, um, it is. <laughs> but the actors playing Matthew and Sandra
0: are extremely good. Uh, particularly Matthew, Peter demon Yes, who I saw in an interview oh, I can't remember, it might be an extra on the DVD or on YouTube or something somewhere, you wouldn't even know that it was the same person. Generally speaking, the facial features aren't that different. You can sort of pick out the child features in an adult. Not with him, completely different. I seem to remember it being completely bald with a big moustache, I think.
1: Yeah, and very few credits, only half a dozen in total, and uh, and only another couple after this. This
0: was his big role. Yeah, but how many times have we seen that with child actors, particularly in stuff like this? It was the same with Century Falls. Very few of them had anything to do after that, and the ones that did didn't last beyond the decade. But but no, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm only sad that I missed out on this as a child, because uh, I wasn't even born. But I think if this had been on while I was, uh, I, w- I should say at the age where I was able to appreciate it, so it would have been sort of late primary, early secondary age, I Dad, think this it? would have been an absolute classic for me, in the same way that Dark Season is.
1: I would have turned eight just when the, this was coming out, and I do remember watching it at the time, I remember absolutely loving it. Should we crack on with episode four? I think we should. Oh, one, one final thing that, to say that I've noticed over these, these three episodes is... Quite how dismissive they are to the housekeeper. First, first episode, she faints, drops the tea tray all over the place. Ian Cuthbertson turns up and said, "When you're quite finished, we'll have another cup of tea." <laughs> no, are you feeling all right? Would you like to sit down? No, just cup of tea. And it, it's down to to Adam to say, "Oh, you could probably do with one yourself." No you're obviously not, well, let me go and make the tea or send the kitty off to make the tea. No, it's just, off you go, back in the kitchen, fetch my dinner and have some, have some yourself while you're at it.
0: <laughs> of yeah, its before... time, of its time. <laughs> before we do move on, it's hit me that Gareth Thomas, he's always been one of those actors, I thought, you remind me of somebody. And it's sort of William Shatner. Possibly, I'm on my own for that one. Well, Gareth Thomas can act. And to see more of that, let's watch episode four.
3: And then there were six.
4: Let's keep things in perspective. It's not as if we were being killed off one by one, isn't it? Of course it isn't. What are we so frightened of? What is this disease we're so afraid of catching? Happy day it is. So we say happy day to each other instead of good morning. What's so terrible about that?
3: You're talking about the symptom, Doctor. The disease goes much deeper. It's
4: an epidemic. It doesn't appear to be an antidote. An antidote? To being happy?
3: Well, if we don't find one soon, it'll be too late. Aren't
4: you being a bit melodramatic? I mean, if it's as bad as that, why not just pack up and leave?
3: I need this job. Sandra's at school here. And you,
4: I've got an awful lot of work to get through. I can't just up sticks now. So you are, in effect, trapped. Again, a very
1: plot-packed episode. Um, I mean, it, it starts off a bit laughable that you've got the the Morris dancers and <laughs> but, but that's because Morris dancers in and of themselves are fairly laughable two of the the dancers are the farmer and his son who previously have been quite anti the happy day aspect of the village and they're joining in with enthusiasm the main thrust of the episode is focusing on Die and his little home that he set up for himself within the sanctuary and that that there's actually a, a really nice and quite decent sized set where he's cooking his dinner and there are rabbits hanging up for the next day or whatever. And he's barricaded himself in and is hanging on to the amulet with the uh, the serpent on it for protection. The three pairs of people who've come to the village who seem to be immune, so Adam and Margaret and the local doctor, all hold a sort of council of war. And the doctor is quite sceptical and says that he's been invited to dinner with Hendricks, but has had to refuse because he's going out to see a, an old patient who won't trust anybody else He leaves his gloves at the house and when Matthew picks him up, up, he's able to, to form a sort of mental connection across to this doctor and is with him as he drives out of the village. And when he gets to the edge of the village, he stops. Matthew isn't able to see what makes him stop. The next day, the doctor is back to being normal, says that he drove out of the village absolutely fine, but ends the conversation with happy day. The three kids go to see Di and get let into his sanctuary and Di immediately freaks at the sight of the the second young lad and saying, why have you you brought him along? During the conversation, Kevin pushes Di in the chest and breaks the the serpent amulet. And Di freaks about this, runs off. Kids follow him. Di gets quite an impressive head start, seeing he doesn't exactly look like a jogger to start with. Gets to the top of the hill and falls down. The kids get up to the top of the hill and all they can see is one of the stones that's fallen down into the valley. The three kids go back to Adam's house where the doctor is sitting with the housekeeper. Very, very chatty and pally. All three kids come in. Young lad Kevin is acting really creepy and Matthew and Sandra get freaked and disappear off and leave Kevin and his dad or granddad, whoever he is. They go to the museum, explain what's happened... Both the adults and their kids from the museum head up to, to see the, the stone, which is where die fell. Margaret is saying there can't be anything there. That's where the barber surgeon was crushed under a, a stone during a previous survey. When they get there, there's no stone, but there is Di looking quite crushed and possibly dead. And that's the end of the episode. Much more dramatic cliffhanger than the Morris dancers that we saw at the end
0: of the last episode. Uh, well, yes, but also a, a much more dramatic end of part one with that creepy looking kid. There's something about I don't know, the uh, as I said, the music is not in any way instrumental. It is all a cappella. And the, the sort of the end of episode sting is this a cappella shriek, basically. And it's really quite unsettling. The music has been
1: Either background or this wonderful, it's almost synchronised screaming, which is the way I tend to describe opera, which I absolutely cannot stand. But it's really well done and ties in perfectly with all the more dramatic parts of the story.
0: There's a definite shift in pace every episode.
1: I think episode three was a bit of a backstep on that because there was so much exposition in the middle of it. There's a build-up in plot. And there's a build up to episode five, so shall we crack away on?
0: I will just say before we get into it that I know that this was filmed in 1976, which was a furiously hot summer that I didn't live through. But everyone in it, in the OB scenes, is clearly either glowing red from sunburn, step forward Ian Cuthbertson, or sweating their balls off in what would in ordinary circumstances be perfectly normal clothes. I'm not sure you can use the word normal
1: to describe an awful lot of these clothes. They're painfully 70s.
0: But yes, I think we should crack on with episode five, because uh, I am, as with first time around, really enjoying this. Ron VT. Adam!
3: What a pleasant
0: surprise.
4: No, not pleasant. As some man, Welsh Poacher, is dead. Dead? Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. I've just seen his body down by the earthworks. Oh, poor old dye. Yes, look, we'll have to call the police. Where's the nearest station? Police, oh my dear fellow. I don't think we need to involve them. Look, the police will have to be told. I tell you what, let's go and take a look. As the local JP, I suppose I represent the majesty of the law in Millbury. Perhaps this isn't the place. No, no, This is the place, all right. Oh, come, we're a civilized community. We're not body snatchers. He was here and those stones weren't. So what are you suggesting? That somebody removed his body and put these stones in his place? I'm not suggesting anything. I just don't understand. Well, anyway, old man, he's obviously not dead.
0: Okay, episode five, Charmed Circle, and we're ramping up a little bit.
1: We are. I mean, there haven't really been any episodes yet that have been plot-free. I mean, it, it, there's an awful lot of story in this that they cram into the seven twenty-five 25-minute episodes, and you're not bored for a second.
0: Not at all, no.
1: So in this episode, we ended last time with Die the Poacher being found dead at the bottom of a hill. Margaret gets the kids out of the way. Adam goes to phone for help for the nearest phone, which happens to be Hendrix. Hendricks says well as the local magistrate I'm the law kind of assumes that he wasn't phoning for an ambulance but, but anyway <laughs> um, they go back they go back to have a look and there is a pile of broken stones that's left where Di's body was Hendricks is saying well there isn't a body here do you really think that the elderly villagers have come along and removed a body and put a load of stones in its place it doesn't make an awful lot of sense So go back to the museum. Matthew has the fragments of the amulet that Di had with him when he died. And he combines them with the amulets that were with the barber surgeon when he died. And it makes a full amulet, which gives Matthew another psychotic conniption. I can't remember what what he found out from that bit.
4: Uh,
0: Neither can I.
1: But it, it it gave Matthew more of the backstory of what's going on. So the next thing is that Margaret and Sandra have been invited to dinner at Hendricks' house. And they, uh, and Margaret really wants to go. Adam is saying, please don't go. We know that the last couple of people who have had weird things happen to them have had invites to go and dine with Hendricks. I'd prefer it if you didn't. And she says, well, actually, you know what... <laughs> I've known you for a couple of weeks and you don't tell me what to do. Which actually isn't that unreasonable a comment. And that she wants she really wants to go and see what the house is like. So she and Sandra go to the house and they're they're around and Hendricks is phenomenally creepy, his butler is even creepier. There is an incredibly uncomfortable to modern audiences scene where they're talking about the hysteria of women and how a celibate existence is better, but there are extenuating circumstances or, or words to that effect. It, it, was very, it wasn't a comfortable watch for a modern audience, that scene. It takes them up to a, a dining room that is the creepiest dining room imaginable. It's all wrought iron candelabra and this stone dining table with stone chairs that kind of reminded me of the gods of Ragnarok from The um, Greatest Show in the Galaxy. And they they have this incredibly uncomfortable dinner party. At the end of which, oh, he start oh. he starts coming out with with some sort of weird pseudo religious chanting. And at that point, it would be we're leaving,
0: has, we're going. This, ha-
1: this hasn't been fun. We're fucking away off. But th- they don't. And there is a pillar of energy that comes out of the table downwards through a a skylight in the roof. Uh, Matthew, who has blatantly stolen a a scarf that Sandra was wearing and she just seems to have forgotten the fact that she was wearing this green scarf. Anyway, he is using this to psychometrically track what's going on and gets all these images like light and power and all fairly nondescript things. And the episode ends with Margaret and Sandra being exposed to this energy light, whatever.
0: It's really crackling along as I said with episode four, stepping up a gear every episode, it's really powered through. I mean, this is, you're now getting to sort of final episode cliffhanger bit, but you've still got two episodes to go. Although I have to admit, fairly impressive dining table. I'd, I'd be quite happy with that as my dining room. Big stone table, three or four stone chairs around it echoing stone chamber, you'd be impressed to put dinner parties on there. A Bit of a
1: bugger if you've got more than two people
0: across for dinner, though. Yeah, that would be an arse. Behaving that way at dinner, maybe less so. At dinner, the behaviour was creepy as fuck. Well, particularly when you've got a beautiful redhead and her daughter there in a stone chamber locked away in the middle of God knows where. Yeah, it's not exactly like you're in a... A semi that you can sort of run out of the front door and halt, uh, call a taxi
1: is semi the really the thing that you want to say at that point? No, <laughs>
0: no. Detached terrorist prefab uh,
1: bad co-host.
0: <laughs> but this is it's really <laughs> gripping stuff. <laughs> as far- I'm getting back on track here, I insist. As far okay. as I'm aware, this has never been repeated. I mean, have talking pictures or UK Gold or? Anything like that not done this? I could be wrong here, but as far as I'm aware, no, it's never been repeated.
1: I mean, it was released on commercial DVD almost as soon as commercial DVDs were available. I mean, this has massive cult following, and you can see why.
0: Yes, because I, I suspect <laughs> there are an awful lot of Blake 7 fans who have gone back and watched this commercially after the fact, It's not, I don't know, is it not a Blake Seven audience? I suspect it would be, actually. Well, it may be now. At the time that it came
1: out, it would have been a, people like me who'd watched it as a kid, who remember it being fantastic. And it is, I, I have lost count of the number of times I've watched this, and it's still compelling. And we can laugh at the the 70s clothes and the fact that Margaret's hair seems to get bigger scene by scene by scene um, and the Morris dancing and all of that, but it, none of it detracts from the fact that it is
0: incredibly creepy and very, very atmospheric. Completely agreed, yes. I think the atmospheric description, that's, that's pretty much the killer for me. It's just how much it draws you in. The story is a little, I won't say confusing, but it's a little bit nebulous, Uh, it does all come to a head later on. But five episodes in, nothing tangible has happened, and yet you're still absolutely gripped. Yeah,
1: and... With the story, by this point, we're kind of ignoring the fact that science is a thing. And I have no problem with that. I have no problem with people leaving science behind as long as it's a conscious decision to leave science behind and you replace it with something else. You replace it with mysticism, you've got fantasy, and this
0: is a good fantasy. Agreed. Completely agreed. I wish there was more of this in the archive. I know there are certain things that are of this ilk, but there's nowhere near enough.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is still other stuff we can do do from this era. But before we do that, shall we crack away on with episode six? It seems reasonable.
4: Ron VT. What an extraordinary room. Everyone says that. But it's not so extraordinary when you consider where we are.
3: At this table.
4: I wanted this room to reflect the uniqueness of this environment of ours.
3: Fascinating.
4: Sandra, will you sit here? Your mother opposite you. I shall sit between you.
2: You have a throne? Uh,
4: Possibly. (laughs) I found it in the mason's yard. Magnificent, isn't it?
3: And these other pieces, the table and the chairs, you had them made?
4: The mason carved them in the same style from the same stone. Bon appétit, my children.
0: Episode 6, Squaring the Circle. That absolutely flew. What happened, Dr. Exton? Uh,
1: we ended the previous episode with Margaret and Sandra at a really creepy dinner table and dinner party with Hendrik. Margaret has promised to, uh, to go and see Adam afterwards, and because of Matthew's psychometric connection and him getting really quite oddly obsessed with what was going on in the house, they believe that uh, Margaret and Sandra have been taken over by whatever the force going around the village is. And that's kind of blown out of the water by the fact that Margaret then turns up looking perfectly normal, saying, "I decided not to go along to the to the dinner, didn't uh, Sandra didn't feel terribly well. she's back in bed. How about that nightcap? Matthew and Adam aren't completely convinced about this, and whatever they think what's going on in the village is creepy as fuck, so they they decide they're going to leave, pack all their stuff up. Carry on being incredibly parochial and I was going to say borderline rude, but just rude to poor Mrs Crabtree, who's looking after them. They have their breakfast, get into the car, drive off and are, are stopped by a stone in the centre of the road, which they believe is Mrs Crabtree. They wake up there in the manor house. Car is undamaged. Uh, Hendrick is still incredibly creepy, but saying, well, nothing has actually happened and you'll be staying with me for dinner, it's in an hour or whatever. Prior to leaving, Matthew has had a, a meeting with Sandra who acts quite oddly, but it was in the grounds of the church and in the basement of the church he's found a whole load of computer equipment, which Hendricks then discovers him finding, and it's odd and not committal non committal and really quite unscientific about it. all of his explanations that don't explain anything. And that's the end of the episode.
0: It pounded along. That should have been harder to describe. I don't know. But it flew by. I can't believe that we've just watched 25 minutes. Every episode that we've watched has been gripping,
1: has been, this is a huge amount of television or a huge amount of plot to fit into 25 minutes. And yet they do it. And they do it with effective characterization and with very good and effective
0: plotting. This is really compelling. Well, I'm hooked. We've only got an, one episode left. And frankly, I'm quite surprised we've only got an episode left because I've said every episode, it's ramping up a gear. This has just crashed into the end credits without me even noticing. This is brilliant. Brilliant. And
1: I've, I've noticed this with a number of the other things that we've done. You get so much more out of it when you know you're going to be comment on, commenting on it afterwards.
0: That is true, actually, yeah. You start looking for stuff and examining the technical aspects of it a little bit more than you would if you were just sat on your own watching it purely for pleasure. This just yeah, happens no, to true. be for a podcast and very, very pleasurable.
1: I think this is the the show that prompted the whole podcast thing because it was something we'd watched ages ago on a, a a tele-fantasy weekend and I suggested re-watching it and that was when the whole we've seen this before why don't we record our comments oh if we're recording things we might as well podcast things I was going to say I could be wrong but I don't think I am I think this is what started the Exton Moss experiment
0: well either way it's a fucking good ride and I'm really really loving it and with that we shall run VT on the final part episode seven full circle
4: we know that the circle
0: here is in alignment with Hendrik's supernova. Which is now a black hole. Right. Suppose he's using it somehow
2: to turn the villagers into happy days. In the beginning was the star. And the star was some sort of god. Yeah. Perhaps it had some sort of benign power. But then,
4: when the supernova became a black hole, the power was reversed. And the priests use it to extract man's ability to think for himself. The quality that makes him human.
2: So that's what goes on in Hendrick's peculiar dining room. And whenever XB1 is in alignment with the sun. Wait a minute, wait
4: a minute, wait a minute. Being in the constellation of the Great Bear, that'd be fairly frequent. Daily, probably. He'd still need split second timing to predict the moment of alignment. Well, that would explain the computer you found in the crypt of the church.
2: And all the digital clocks throughout the house.
4: No, he needs something far more accurate than that. Or
2: perhaps there's a master clock somewhere.
4: Hendrik caught you in the crypt, right? You said you saw equipment, machinery. The vent was making you choke, making your eyes water, right? That's right. You smelled ammonia in the crypt. The atomic clock is sometimes controlled by the ammonia molecule. That's where he keeps it. So, it's the end.
0: But the moment has been prepared for. Well, sort of. Watching it again, I've seen it before, but there's lots of it that I've forgotten. It was brilliant, but I'm going to let you do the pricey first.
1: OK, well, the final episode starts with Adam and Matt being um, held prisoners in Hendrick's house, presumably put with preparation for a ceremony for them to be inducted into whatever is happening in the village. As we've seen before, the villagers form a circle around the, uh, around the house and indulge in some community-synchronised screaming.
0: <laughs> well, yes, on a loop for nine minutes...
1: I thought you might appreciate that. It's, I mean, it's actually very, very atmospheric. Adam and Matt talk and realize that the timing of exposure to the whatever it is in the constellation of the Great Bear has to be timed very precisely and consequently needs a very, very accurate clock. And when Matt was in the cellar of the old church, the episode before, he describes the smell of ammonia. So they're realizing they're using an atomic clock based on the molecular vibrations of the ammonia molecule which apparently can't be altered. Um, and if ammonia can't be altered, then there are huge branches of chemistry that need rewriting. But that that's a, a tiny little nickel. They realise that they're not going to be able to alter the clock at all. But what they do using some of the scientific equipment they have is increase the number of pulses that come from the clock by adding in pulses of their own, thereby speeding up the clock and meaning that they are exposed to whatever it is a few minutes ahead of what they're expected to be. They go ahead, um, go up to the the dining room, are really quite rude about it all, but still sit down to to have their dinner. Hendricks goes through his creepy little spiel and then twizzes round on his magical rotating throne thing. Assumes that light has come down and affected Adam and Matt, seems fairly oblivious to the fact that there was no actual extra light in the room and sends them down to, to join the circle outside. They go down. They, um, Adam takes Margaret's hand, and the villagers realise that something has gone wrong and they've not been inducted into into being happy ones. Butler sees this, gets a bit panicked, runs upstairs, tells Hendrik, just as the light comes down and blasts Hendrik, who then turns into a sort of Slarty Bardfast type druid. <laughs> matt and adam try and take margaret and sandra away the other villagers uh, one by one turn into stone so becoming another type of stone circle and as they're, they're trying to get away, both Margaret and Sandra turn into stone. Adam and Matt run off and go to, uh, to stay in the, the sanctuary, Di's old place. Wake up the next morning to find Die there, dressed differently. Um, none of his poaching gear around and working as a knife sharpener and saying that he's been doing it all of his life. Adam and Matt go back to the museum to find Margaret and Mrs. Crabtree calling for, for help because they've disappeared. There's really quite a touching goodbye scene between Adam and Margaret with her saying, can't you stay? But Adam and Matt say that they, they really need to leave, get back to the car, which is now undamaged. Um, they aren't sure they're going to be able to get away, but they drive off out of the village without incident. And as they are leaving, they stop to have a look back at what's gone on. And Matt comes out with all sorts of nonsense about time going in circles that there's been no evidence of so far. They drive off. Coming in the opposite direction is somebody who looks the absolute spit of Hendricks, but calling himself Lyle, who takes up residence at the manor house. And you assume that the, the whole cycle of the Children of the Stones is going to start all over again. And they'll get another couple of people in to, to fill the gaps in their stone circle. And all Adam and Matt have been able to do is escape, but haven't been able to stop what's going on and haven't been able to rescue any of the people who are involved in it.
0: The End. Yes, um, I enjoyed it, but as we've said with all the others, it steps up a gear every episode, and if you're not paying attention, by the end, it's easy to become tripped up. I've got to say, that last episode, you really, really needed to know what had gone on in the previous six. We've both seen them, and it was still a little bit, don't blink. Yeah, but it was
1: television made in a time where they actually expected their audience to think and remember things.
0: Yeah, no, but they're not usually this sort of intense. There was also a lot of logic leaping, particularly by Matt,
1: who... Yeah, there was, without any evidence behind it. And (laughs) uh, some dreadful, dreadful science, which I actually have no problem with whatsoever, because it's not pretending to be science fiction, it's folk horror. It's the same sort of thing as the changes and escape tonight night king of the castle and raven and sky and the owl service there were a whole load of these all around the same time and they they don't pretend to be science fiction. It, it's a very late 60s, early to mid 70s genre of fiction that was very nicely picked up again with Century Falls. And Century Falls is a real hark back particularly to this. And I can see a lot of parallels between the two. Yeah. Um, I, which i would never really twigged before, but we, we did Century Falls fairly recently. Um, and having done this... Then you can look and say, well, actually, yeah, there's a lot of parallels between the two. Very little in the way of direct copying. I mean, the atmospheric bit of the the villagers in the circle in this is kind of like the Mother's Union seance in um in Century Falls. The atmosphere in this is absolutely electric. It builds it up marvelously that it doesn't matter that the final bit pretty much has no bearing on what's gone on before and doesn't make a great deal of sense. You're just glued to the edge of your seat.
4: You are happy? So happy. Happy. When you join the circle, your initiation will be complete. You will be happy once. Take them outside. <gasps>
2: what's, happened? <laughs> what's, happened? <laughs> what's happened? What's happened? Why, Anna?
4: What's happening? I'm Master, they are still impure. The circle is broken. Your protection is gone.
0: We've sat through that, wrapped. Overall, what did you think of it? Overall, I thought that it was, to be honest, wasted on kids. This is just one of those things that it's not really a kid's series, it's not an adult series. Time slot, it was very definitely a kid's series. This
1: was a late afternoon when you get in from school
0: thing. Oh no, I know it was in the kid's time slot. What I mean is, this is in a, a very small stable of dramas that have been over the years that... Really, you could transpose them into an adult slot and they would probably work. The changes from what I've seen of it, bear in mind I've only seen the first episode, that's another one I think would actually move quite well into a adult-stroke-family time slot rather than purely kids.
1: There are a few of these that I remember watching when I was a kid. Children's Stones, definitely. I think this would have been round about the same time as um, Stones of Blood, wouldn't it?
0: Uh, 76 this, uh, so you're more sort of hand of fear.
1: Oh, so Stones of Blood may have been influenced by this, because (laughs) the whole Caesarea Diplos turning to stone at the end, there's bits of it that's almost shot for shot.
0: Yeah, it was about a year before Stones of Blood. So it's possible, and since it's so well-remembered, I think there was a commercial video release of this round about 1980, 81,
1: something like that, very, very early on. Righty, right, that was early. Because I remember when I first started getting into British telefancy, and that would have been sort of late 80s, Children of the Stones was one of those things that you could get hold of in reasonable quality without too much difficulty. And that was because it was one of the very few things that had a commercial release. Other things you were relying on, somebody knowing somebody from abroad who could send things over or somebody knowing somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody at the archives or old videotapes. And, you know, late 70s, early 80s, blank videotapes cost a fortune. I think they were about £10 each or something, which was a lot of money in those days.
0: Well, I'm just glancing through the Wikipedia article. There was a sequel Was there? Yes. Return to the Stones by Jeremy Burnham and Trevor Ray. And it was published as an e-book in 2012. An audiobook narrated by Gareth Thomas. That's got to be worth a listen.
1: Well, I'd I'd read the book rather than listen because, well, you know, my thoughts on it, on audiobooks. I never knew that. I knew it had been... Remade and it's been redone for radio fairly recently, I think.
0: 2020, yeah. Uh, Reese Shearsmith within in that, and uh, Steve Oram, I, I seem to think, but I've not heard that yet.
1: I mean, it's always had the reputation in telefancy circles of being one of the best kids' TV serials that was ever made, and you can understand why it's seven episodes, it's as long as The Ambassadors of Death,
0: <laughs> yes. Well, on balance,
1: yeah. Um, This ramps up the tension, episode by episode by episode. Now, it it does feel as though some of the middle episodes get a bit filler because there's not an awful lot going on in terms of plot development. The first two or three episodes are very busy. And then you've got two or three episodes where things sort of tick along and there's enough to keep you interested. But actually, it could be trimmed down a wee bit. And then there's the final episode where you get to the commercial break and think, well, actually, the plot's over now. What are you going to do? Oh, we'll reset time. But they still ma- they still manage to fill in that final
0: ten or fifteen minutes. It doesn't make any sense, but it's very atmospheric. It is. Um, even as we pointed out as we were watching it, even the drive down the country lane is atmospheric.
1: A lot of this is down to the quality of acting of the leads. So Ian Cuthberts and Gareth Thomas and Veronica Strong all act their little socks off.
0: Got to agree with you on that. Yeah, a, a lot of the charm of this is from the leads.
1: Yeah. Um, and the the juvenile leads, which is often where these things fall apart, they weren't terrible. For once, no.
0: <laughs> I
1: don't know how many of them went on to do other things. I think Sandra went on to do quite a few other things. Matt, not very much. And I didn't bother looking at any of the others because they were all fairly incidental and rubbish.
0: <laughs> yeah, we've seen this before. Century Falls wave your flag at this point but yeah on the whole um, i mean it, i really enjoyed it it was one of those things that i didn't see on first transmission but the wonder of dvd and of well course the whole now, not being alive thing was a bit <laughs> it is a bit of a, a bit of a crimp that. yeah uh, but we've got releases from dvd companies so really I'd, I'd like to think they are making something out of these can't be very much but yeah, we're seeing things that we would never, ever see the light of day otherwise.
1: And thoroughly enjoying them. And there, there are others in this kids' TV folk horror genre that we can look at. Um, I'd really like to do the,
0: the changes. I'd like to do the owl service. We would both, I think, recommend Children of the Stones. That was an entertaining seven episodes.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the final thing that I wanted to say is that a lot of this sort of 70s ITV, children's TV stuff is kind of wanting to do a a Doctor Who wannabe thing. I don't actually think this is any different. You could really imagine this as a unit story. What really struck me, particularly during the sort of Morris dancing bits, is that... This is per tweet Doctor Who without the Doctor in I mean the the obvious comparison is the the demons.
0: Yeah, or Tom Baker. I could see this being sort of mid Tom Baker. The obvious d- comparison being Stones of Blood, but it's definitely seventies Doctor Who. You couldn't really see this as any other.
1: Yeah, and Margaret is very much fitting herself into the companion aud- audience identification role that the companion would would normally do to
0: Adam Brake's Doctor. Oh, comfortably. As I've said many times before, Doctor Who does this little country village thing, particularly in the 1970s, very, very well. The, the obvious comparison is the Demons. Yeah, I think that's the sort of benchmark. But I would say, once you get into the Hinchcliffe era, uh, and I know Image of the Fendiles sort of sneaked into the Williams era, but you've got, all through Hinchcliffe, you were drifting through the English countryside, really, for a lot of it.
1: Uh, Were you? you? I mean, a lot of his stuff is gothic horror. It's not particularly folk horror, because they are two different genres. Uh,
0: True. Yeah, I'll give you that. I can
1: actually see... Tom Baker's Doctor working very well in this. Oh, can you imagine Tom Baker and and Ian Cuthbertson chewing oh. the scenery, bouncing off each other?
0: They're the best bit about reboss operation.
1: Who would you have as companion if we've got if we've got the Baker Doctor? Who would you have as compa- companion? Mary Tam? doesn't no doesn't have to be a a Baker companion. This is fancy casting.
0: Oh, it would still be Mary Tam. I think largely because it's that Stones of Blood that sort of era, it would slot in very, very well. Um, I can't really possibly Sarah Jane. For me, it would be Liz Shaw. Really?
1: Yes. Can you not just imagine her calling bullshit and all the crap science? Well, yeah, that's,
0: that's probably why I can't. Uh, it's the same reason I can't imagine someone like Tegan being part of it, because it would just be seven episodes of swearing. Which would be wildly entertaining. No, I, I think
1: Series 6, X, Z, whatever. The Tom Baker-Lishaw side trip. Tom Baker and Zoe. Zoe? Zoe would put up with none of his bullshit.
0: Before we drift off a little bit too far down this country lane, should we bring things to a close? <laughs> Boys and girls, thank you very much for listening to our gin fueled but somewhat nostalgic ramblings. We shall be back very soon with another episode. Thank you for staying the course. Anybody who hasn't
1: seen Children of the Stones, really do yourself a favour and get a hold of it and watch it. It's cheap as chips to get on, to get on DVD. It is well worth your time.
0: The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. All featured soundtracks are the property of their respective producers and no infringement of copyright is intended. Title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra and the programme was produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.